So if you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 21. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible book of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 20, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verses 17 to 26. So Acts 21, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 26. The title of the sermon is The Joy and the Challenges in Ministry. Much joy and ongoing challenges we've been seeing through the life of Paul. So let's read our text and then we'll dive into our time together. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing songs of praise to you, our great God and King. Thank you for the opportunity to dive back into your word, to learn what, uh, what, we, what you want us to learn through this message, through this text, and that we could live out our faith with the joy of rejoicing in salvation and also the challenge of pursuing unity in a church with different people and different backgrounds and different customs. Help us always to keep Christ at the center and want to exalt Christ and, and to worship Christ and to, and to focus on the grace that you show us through Christ. And I pray that you would be glorified in our time together this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Accelerated crisis is a literary device commonly used by writers of fiction, particularly in mystery and adventure novels. The protagonist, which is the good guy, is faced with some severe crisis from which there seems to be no possible way of escape. This technique was used in many film series such as James Bond and Mission Impossible. It would be something like the damsel in distress who is tied to the railroad tracks with no hope of escape as a fast-moving train is blaring down its path. At the last moment, the victim is miraculously rescued only to be found in another escalating difficulty. In a rather short amount of time, that same individual is now found in an even greater crisis, like being restrained in a cage filled with snakes 
that is somehow tied to a ticking time bomb about to be dropped out of a cargo plane, which is on fire at 30,000 feet in the midst of a tornado falling into a monsoon of blinding rain and then into the raging waters of the ocean with a tidal wave mounting. You get the idea, right? Accelerating crisis. Again, it's a literary device that after only a short time later, the hero or heroine falls into an even greater crisis. And in creating an accelerated crisis, a writer, uh, he's able to, to move the emotions of the reader uh, uh, as the her hero or heroine goes from the frying pan into the fire. Well, we could easily say that this literary device could have been invented by Luke when he wrote the history of Paul's missionary journeys. I mean, from place to place, Paul faced one crisis after another. He has been beaten with rods in one town and stoned in another. And still another, he was cast into prison and he managed somehow to escape at the last possible moment only to go to another town and be found in a worse crisis than before. And so here in Acts chapter 21, Paul has just been warned by the prophet Agabus not to go to Jerusalem because chains and imprisonment awaited him there. But Paul refused to be persuaded by these dire warnings. And like Jesus before him, he set his face as a flint to go. And Paul's arrival in Jerusalem marked the end of his third missionary journey. He would soon be arrested and remain an ambassador in chains, as Ephesians 6.20 says. In fact, for the remainder of the book, he would remain as a captive. This transitional passage between the end of his third missionary journey and his arrest portrays the apostles' fellowship with the Jerusalem church and the events leading up to his incarceration. To capture the features of this monumental meeting, I have broken this passage down into three headings. You see it there in your outline. Number one, we're going to look at a grace-motivated gift, verse 17, and then a God-centered celebration, verses 18 through 20, and then a gospel-driven plan, the rest of verse 20 through verse 26. Let's start with number one, a grace-motivated gift in verse 17. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And so your first blank, if you're taking notes, is that giving is a response to the grace of Jesus. Giving is a response to the grace of Jesus. You see, at some point, or even throughout Paul's third missionary journey, certain Christians were moved by his ministry. And they knew that Paul had been converted on the road to Damascus, but they also knew that the church in Jerusalem had a big part to play in Paul's growth and his maturity. And furthermore, it had been communicated that there was some monetary need that the saints in Jerusalem had been burdened by. And so these other Christians on this third missionary journey wanted to help meet that specific need. And so these Christians presented a love offering to the church in Jerusalem. This had happened once before, back in Acts 11, 29 through 30, when we read about there was a, a big famine in the land. And then in Acts 11, 29, it says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
And so at that time, again, the disciples of Antioch in Syria were determined to help send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so now, in Acts chapter 21, verse 17, when it says that Paul arrives in Jerusalem, I'm saying that presumably he is bringing that collection which has been discussed on his third missionary journey. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. Maybe you'll see it a little bit more clearly here because this correlates time-wise with the end of Paul's third missionary journey where it spells out a little bit more specifically about the gift that Paul would have brought. In Romans chapter 15, verse 25, Paul says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. So he's talking about the end of his third missionary journey because the first two started and ended in Syria at Antioch, but this one, he's ending it in Jerusalem. So he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So he's simply saying the Gentile church had been blessed by the Jerusalem church. They had received the fruit of the maturity of the Jerusalem church sending out the apostles, sending out Paul, and so they wanted to give back materially when it was brought to their attention that there was a need for the saints there in Jerusalem. And so this visit, again, verse 17, when he came to Jerusalem, I'm saying presumably he's bringing that very gift that we're discussing, and also it says that the brothers received us gladly. I think that's just a little hint that Paul was bringing the goods. He was coming with a love offering. He was coming with money that would help meet the needs of the resources. And what church wouldn't receive you gladly if you were coming saying, here's some some gifts so that you can help do the ministry that God's called you. Here's some gifts so you can feed the poor. Here's some gifts so that you can clothe those who need clothing, that you can help the sick. And so it really served as a symbol, this love gift served as a symbol of unity. And in sending it, the Gentile Christians were humbly and lovingly expressing their solidarity with the Jewish Christians. Paul had just taught the Ephesian elders back in chapter 20. Look over back one chapter, Acts 20, verse 35. Paul had just been talking about this. He says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said... It is more blessed to give than to receive. So this is part of Paul's teaching as he goes out. He's preaching the gospel and he's reminding people to give in light of the transformation that's been done in their own heart. And the truth is that our giving should be motivated by grace and not by guilt. How many of you ever thought as you were kind of writing a check or today you go on push pay or on your app to give some money and you feel kind of like, oh man, I should give this week. I know I haven't given in a while and you start to kind of feel like I better do this because I feel guilty if I don't. I think that's a little bit of human nature, but I just want to remind you this morning that our giving should be motivated by grace. God has given us everything that we have. And so giving back to him a portion of what he's given to us as stewards should be a privilege. It ought to be a blessing. We ought to think how God has given us so much. Everything you have is a gift from God. 
How can we not in return give back to him? And so we should reflect even on 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And that whole principle there is just saying, he died for you, he gave his all for you, and it's that grace that was given to us that ought to motivate us, because specifically, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the two chapters in the New Testament that emphasize giving regularly, and giving sacrificially, and giving joyfully. And the reason that we do that is because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for us. He died for us. He accomplished salvation for us so that in his poverty, we might become rich. And those who have been made rich in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, but we've also been given monetary gain. And in our jobs and in our labor, we want to be able to give back. That's what's happening here. I don't want you to miss that because if you just kind of read through it quickly, you might forget about how the Gentile believers wanted to give to the Jewish believers. And that's a big deal in the first century and in this culture. In fact, your second subpoint just also reminds us that giving resources is a tangible way to help others. Providing resources to others, again, it's a tangible way of expressing love and support. You know, I mean, even Lisa and I, we receive flowers and a card. That's just a tangible way where you can say, hey, thank you, and here's something we want to give to you. I don't know what's in the envelope, but I'm going to check that out later. But, you know, the idea is that you give to something on their birthday. Uh, by the way, happy birthday to Anna. Where are you, sweetie? We got Anna, my 17-year-old's birthday today. I don't, is she, she skipping church? Oh, there she is back there in the back. Happy birthday, sweetie. So we got, we got a gift for you, all right? I don't know, we didn't get to give it to you this morning because of the rush, but you give things, right, because you love people. And here, Christians should regularly display acts of generosity because we have received the amazing grace that God gives us through Christ. And so let us look for ways to bless others through tangible gifts. We see this all through Scripture, even here in Acts. Go back with me, if you will, to Acts 2. Just a quick reminder of the giving again that we see motivated out of grace. Acts 2.45, at the end of that beautiful day of Pentecost, it says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And look at Acts 4, verse 32 through 35, in the same way, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. See that? It wasn't his own, but, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and, that gra- and great grace was upon them all. So again, just look at the connection. Gospel ministry, we're going to give. Gospel's transformed us, let's give. Because it goes on to say there in verse 33, or verse 34, therefore, uh, excuse me, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I just love it, right? I'm just singing gospel connection. You know, as a kid growing up, my parents uh, always supported our family well, and I was able to participate in so many things. But occasionally, there would be a mission trip come up at the church, and I'd be like, man, I'd like to go on that mission trip, but you got to raise a lot of funds to go. And I was the recipient so many times 
Number, countless times where people said, you know what, hey Adam, we wanna help support you. You know, you send out those mission letters, you let people know about what you're doing, you're, you're asking for prayers, and you're asking if somebody would like to give. And one of, the, one of the neatest things I've ever experienced in my life was when I became a physician's assistant and I worked in open heart surgery. I was uh, still single before I met this, this uh, beautiful lady right here. And I had a pretty decent income. And for the first time in my life, I was able to be like on the other side of that. Like, oh, this young man wants to go on a mission trip? I'm gonna write a check. Send that boy out on the field. You know, this kid wants to go to camp? I can meet that need, you know, because it had happened to me so many times. What a blessing to be on the other side to where you have a little bit extra income, maybe a little bit extra margin, and you're able to send people out. You're able to support the work of the ministry, and that's what these Gentile churches were doing. They were saying, hey, we wanna give in a tangible way. Not only that, but your last sub-point here says giving doesn't guarantee unity in the church. It doesn't guarantee it. It's one of the goals Paul had, but in this case, we'll see it doesn't necessarily guarantee it. Paul was not trying to get others to accept him by presenting this gift. He was simply fulfilling a need and desiring to be a blessing. And sadly, this gift did not necessarily accomplish the unifying purpose that Paul hoped for, because we're going to see next week how he gets arrested and he gets accused, even in this text, of doing things and saying things that he never did or said. This is why Paul even writes in Romans 15, verse 30 and 31, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So he's asking for prayer later on after his imprisonment that you guys pray for me because it didn't go so well with everybody in Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. Is it possible? that more of the conservatives there in Jerusalem, and maybe even some of the Christian Jews there in the church in Jerusalem were distinctly cold towards Paul and the monetary relief that he offered. The reason, as we'll get into it here a little bit later in these verses, in their mind, that Paul's reputation was suffering. He, he was, they, they had heard that he had been saying things against Jewish custom. And so James is going to try to find some type of mediating way and a, a present a proposal to Paul in hopes of disarming their suspicions. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we move on past this first point, again, we're taking all this from 17. We're adding the cross-references of Romans 15. We're reminded that they received them gladly. We're talking about there's a gift that was given to the church here. And so before we move on this morning, can I just ask you, how are you doing in the area of giving? I mean, how are you doing in the area of giving of your time and of your talents? Certainly, we want to do that. We're not always we have a little extra money in our pocket, so we want to give of our time and our service. We also want to give by, by helping others and, and being congenial and interested in the life of others as we practice in one another's and, and fellowship. But, but can I just ask you this morning, how are you doing in giving out of your earnings to the Lord? How do you feel like you're doing as far as giving back to the Lord? I mean, times are tough. Todd had mentioned inflation is high. The economy is somewhat unstable. But how are you doing in giving to the Lord? Remember, I don't want you to give out of guilt. I'm just asking how are you doing because the motivation always should be from grace. It should be like, you know what? God saved me. 
I used to be a poor boy, and now I'm a grown man, and I have just a little bit of extra that I can give in, 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 a, in a response to the saving grace that God has worked in my life. It, it's Proverbs 3, 9 that says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Uh, be reminded of what God said to Israel in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He writes, will man rob God? And God responds, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. I love this part of Malachi, because he's saying, hey, you guys aren't giving like you should, and I want you to now start giving like you should, and I want you to put me to the test. You know how many times God says, put me to the test in the Bible? Like zero outside of this text. But in this text, he said, hey, put me to the test and see if I don't open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. So God just basically saying here, you can't outgive God. You give, God gives back. You give, God gives back. That's what Jesus taught in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. What measure are you using? We're supposed to be using the measure of God's grace. It's unqualified. It, it, it's infinite. It's beyond what we could ever imagine. I hope that you'll think about that as you think about giving to those that are in need. Second principle I want us to see this morning is a God-centered celebration. So we have this, this God-centered celebration. Your next uh, blank says all the elders were present. Verse 18, we're tiptoeing a little deeper now into the text where it says on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. I just want to say that this was an official reception of Paul from the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And the mention of James and all the elders does mark a significant change in the leadership. When the church at Jerusalem began, it was ruled by the apostles. For example, Acts 2.42, back again on the day of Pentecost, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in Acts 4.35, in verse 37, it says, again, when that landowner sold, he laid the money at the apostles' feet. But as the church grew, the apostles recognized their need for assistance with the administration details. And if you remember in Acts 6, seven men were chosen to serve the distribution of food. And then the first time we see the word elder in the book of Acts is in Acts 11.30. And by the time the Jewish council met in Acts 15, the elders had assumed a prominent role. And now here in Acts 21, we find that the Jerusalem church is entirely led by elders. Not, not mentioning apostles anymore. The apostles aren't mentioned, but the elders are mentioned. At least one apostle had already died, James, the, the brother of John. The other apostles had turned over the leadership responsibility to the elders there that they had raised up, and they had headed out, the apostles had headed out for missionary work. And so elder rule is now being established as the New Testament pattern for church government. The number of elders is not given some have speculated that there were 70, which could be correlating with the Jewish Sanhedrin, which had 70 men. 
And the Jerusalem church also had grown to quite a number, many thousands, according to verse 20. So the thought of having many elders is not surprising. And just as Peter had fulfilled the role as the main spokesman for the apostles, now James, verse 18, is fulfilling that role as the spokesman for these elders. James had been mentioned in Galatians 2, verse 9, as as being someone who had been with Peter and John and that he was one of the pillars of the church. Look at verse 19, your next blank, says, all the credit goes to God. So a transition from apostles to elders, but now we're getting in here. All the credit goes to God. Verse 19, after greeting them, this is Paul greeting James and the uh, elders there in Jerusalem. After greeting them, he related one by one the details that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. All the credit goes to God. I love how this verse says that Paul related one by one the things that God had done. He didn't just give generalities. He gave specifics. He didn't just give a bunch of stats. He gave a bunch of heartwarming stories of God's grace. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter did a similar thing when he returned to Jerusalem from his uh, time in Caesarea in Acts 10. And it says in Acts 11, 4, when he came back, Peter from Caesarea witnessing to Cornelius, he comes home, gives a report to the, the, the Jerusalem leaders there. And it says, but Peter began and explained to them in order. And if you go back and read Acts 11, it's almost the exact same thing as Acts 10. Everything that happened in Acts 10 with winning Cornelius to Christ comes out in Acts 11, and he goes through it play by play. And it's almost repetitive, but I'm just saying that they gave a lot of details about God's work. I mean, my wife loves details. If I get home from work and she says, hey, baby, how was your day? And I'm like, my day was great. She's like, all right, now, come on, you got to give me some details. I can't just, you can't just say, fine, I want to know what's going on about your day, what was good about it, right? People love to hear details about God's grace. That's why it's so great to highlight our missionaries. You get details. This is what Michael and Jordan are doing in Fiji. You see the detail, and it begins to stir you up. So Paul gave details of, this, of, this, of, of what God had been doing. He had done that when he returned from each missionary journey, from the first missionary journey in Acts 14, 27, when he arrived back to Antioch, it says, that they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and now how how God had opened a door of faith uh, to the Gentiles. And so I definitely appreciate how Paul was quick as well here in verse 19, as the sub point says, to give all the credit to God. Notice how he says again in verse 19, he related one by one the things that God had done. He didn't say, listen to what I did. He didn't say, listen to my numbers. He said, let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you what he did. His praises to God were for the victories achieved among the Gentiles. And Paul didn't brag. He he gave all the glory to God. He, He related in detail what God had done on these journeys. It's a good practice for us to recount the evidences of God's grace and to share them with others. That's Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. And one way to not forget is to share. Don't forget what he's done for you. Paul didn't forget to praise the Lord for his work, and neither should we. Don't forget to share what the Lord has done. Don't take what God has done for granted. Treasure it. Tell others about it. Tell others about what God has done for you. Tell others what God has done for your family. Tell others about what God's doing in your small group. Tell others about the goodness and the greatness of God. 
and do it all for his glory. It's all his credit. Paul says in Romans 15, 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except of what Christ has accomplished through me. It was never about him. It's always been about God. It's always been all the glory and all the credit goes to God. I used to be a part of a denomination that seemed at times to pride itself on giving totals. You know, this many people got saved and this many people got baptized and this many people and that many people. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's all about the motive, right? But sometimes I just like, man, I'm just tired of hearing a lot of list of numbers because it seems like that's what's being pushed. But I like how Paul here again is not saying it, it was never for him about I, I led so many people to Christ. It was never about, I baptized this number of people. It was never about, I planted this many churches. It was never about, I appointed this many elders, or I performed this many miracles. It was always about God. It was always about his work. It was about his power. It was about his saving grace. So all the credit goes to God, but your next blank says, all the glory goes to God as well, right? All the glory goes to God as well. The beginning of verse 20, and when, he, and when they heard it, they glorified God. So the beginning of the verse again, the Jewish brothers, when they heard Paul's report about what God had done in the Gentile areas, the Jewish brothers glorified God. This word glorified means they praised God. They honored God. They extolled God. And this particular report was concerning, again, what God had done amongst the Gentiles. And the fact that the Jewish Christians responded with joy and not with jealousy or suspicion shows a work of God even in their hearts. This worshipful reaction is similar to previous reactions upon receiving reports of God's grace shown to Cornelius that we referenced when Peter reports of that magnificent conversion. Acts eleven eighteen says, when they heard all of these things, they fell silent. It took them a minute to adjust to the fact Gentiles were getting saved. So when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You know what the truth is? That at times it can be difficult for Christians to rejoice when God is working through someone else or through someone else's church or someone else's ministry or in someone else's family. But the attitude that, that we should have should be one of rejoicing. And if you're struggling this morning with jealousy, that's something we gotta repent of. Be like, I'm so thankful that God's work is going on in other places. When God is at work in other places by saving sinners, it's all about his amazing grace. And it's always a reason to rejoice. We are never in competition with other like-minded Christians, right? We are on the same team. And Paul demonstrated this beautifully as we looked at this text with the mighty men on Wednesday night. Just look at it in Philippians 1. And we took a moment and talked about this, but in Philippians 1, 15 to 18, this is exactly what Paul models for us. And it was even in a very challenging situation where it says in Philippians 1, 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So you would think, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm all for the guys who are doing it with the right heart, but these guys who are doing it with the, with the not so right heart, like surely Paul's about to condemn them, right? Not so quick, because in verse 18 it says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, 
Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And so I just love that, that attitude. Of when you hear Christ being proclaimed, I mean, that would be the first thing we should do is just make sure, is Christ being proclaimed? Right? We're not going to rejoice in the growth of a false doctrine. But if Christ is truly being proclaimed and it's from a little different ministry of a little different uh, view, that's okay. right? We want to rejoice. We're rejoicing in God. We're rejoicing in the saving work that God is doing. We're rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed. And all of this is glorifying to God. I mean, it could be easy to pat ourselves on the back. It could be easy sometimes when we have that success to take some of that glory for ourselves. It could be easy to, 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 to be jealous even for others if they're experiencing God's special favor. But our job is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Our, our response should be to give all the credit to God, to give all the glory to God. Third, a gospel-driven plan a gospel-driven plan. This is where we get into the fray of not all is well, the problem, your next blank, the problem of a rumor against Paul. The rest of verse 20 through verse 22, it says, and they said to him, here's a pivot, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Well, here's the problem. I mean, the joy of the Jerusalem elders was also mixed with concern. They rejoiced and gave God the glory for the Gentile conversions, as we just saw, but they also were acknowledging that many thousands, that's a positive, many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, verse 20 again, had also believed. And so the Jerusalem elders wanted Paul's help with something. They're getting to it, but they say in the middle of verse 20, you, you see, brother, that's, that's the pivot when they say, hey, we're, we're rejoicing with you about your missionary successes, all glory to God, but brother, we need to talk to you about something else. You see, what's going on is there's lots of people right here who've become Christians. We, we're rejoicing with you, but there's thousands of thousands of Jewish believers right here in Jerusalem. When, when the text says many thousands, it's the word myrias, which is the word myriad, right? It's the, it, literally, the word could be translated as 10,000 or countless thousands it's the same word used in Revelation 5:11, where it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So they're saying, as far as we know, there was thousands and thousands of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Some commentaries say it could have easily been on the upside of 20 to 30,000. You say, Adam, what's the problem with that? Nothing. That's good news. The fact that many thousands of thousands of Jerusalem Christians are saved, praise God that so many have been born again. The church had continued to grow since Pentecost and is now 20 years later with a much larger number of Jewish Christians. So what's the problem, you say? Well, the problem is at the end of verse 20 when it says they are all zealous for the law. The problem is it didn't say they're all zealous for Christ. They're all zealous for God's grace. That's, that's not the emphasis. I'm not saying they're not true believers. I'm just saying with their new faith is also a continued zealousness for the Mosaic law. The original language actually uses a noun for zealous. It uses that word zealot. 
It could be translated here, they were literally zealots for the law. They, they were Jewish Christians, and, they, and, they, were, and they, they did love Jesus, but they also remained devoted to the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. And while not viewing it as a means of salvation, which would be true legalism and be condemning them to hell, right? Well, they didn't view it as a means of salvation. These Jewish believers here did still choose to keep and remain devoted to some of the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. They still observed the, the, the required feasts, the Sabbath regulations, dietary restrictions, and many other ritual vows. And so what hurt Paul's reputation was that many of these believers were zealous about continuing to keep Jewish customs, but the word on the street was that Paul was urging Jewish Christians who lived in those Gentile areas to abandon their heritage and to give up all such practices. And they had believed the rumor that all the Jews who lived amongst the Gentiles were told to completely forsake all of their customs and that they should also stop circumcising their children. And so James and the other elders wanted to know what could be done about this now that the Jerusalem Christians would want to know what Paul actually believed and what he taught on the matter. And so their concern at this moment as they pulled Paul aside, James and the elders, to talk about it, their concern wasn't about salvation. It had already been clearly established that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that salvation was entirely apart from the works of the law. The Jerusalem council had made that abundantly clear in Acts 15. And so Paul never taught that Jews were not to keep their customs as a preference if they wanted, and he never taught that they should stop circumcising their children what Paul taught, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, this is what Paul taught, listen carefully, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So he doesn't say, you shall not circumcise your children, Jewish people. He just says, don't put the focus there. Whether they're circumcised or not, that doesn't matter. What matters is keeping God's law. And there, there's a hint towards moving towards the law of Christ, the new covenant, maybe aspects of the moral law, but we understand that the civil ceremonial law is what has now gone by the wayside. To the Galatians, Paul taught that they were to never boast in the old covenant guidelines, but rather boast in the cross. That's the context of Galatians 6, 14, and 15. It says, far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So his point all along has never been to squash any adherence to the ceremonial or civil or dietary law. Just don't use it as a means of obedience toward God. At this point, it's now personal preference. You know, we all have tendencies from things from our past that maybe used to pray a certain way or worship a certain way. Come on, baby, let's get those hands up. You know, used to do things a certain way and you still kind of have that tendency to do it that way. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. It's a freedom that we have. So Paul never prohibited a Jew from circumcising their children if they wanted to. Paul never taught that Jews 
couldn't eat kosher, that they couldn't hold an annual feast, or that they couldn't allow other Jewish cultural practices. What Paul did emphasize is that you couldn't be saved or made holy by doing those things. A person was to be saved by faith in the gospel, and they're made holy by Christ's imputed righteousness. So it was all a lie. It was a rumor that was traveling quickly through these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And Paul never demanded that the Jews abandon circumcision. In addition, I would say, in Paul's hurry to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost, that revealed that he still valued that feast on the Jewish calendar. We've been talking about there the whole third missionary journey. I got to get back for Pentecost. I want to get there. That's a Jewish festival. But Paul wanted to be there. Each one of those festivals, by the way, pointed to Christ, but Paul wanted to get there. And so though Paul did not proclaim uh, uh, that, that uh, you had to do away with the Jewish law, his emphasis was entirely on Christ. Though uh, I would say here um, in Romans 10.4, where some people might have got confused is if they heard something like this, because in uh, Romans 10.4, Paul wrote, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you hear a statement like that, and you're like, okay, Christ is the end of the law, and you would say, yeah, as a means of salvation, not that the law could ever save you, but obeying it was important. And so he just never insisted, though, that all Jews give up all Jewish customs. And so Paul clearly loved the Jewish people. I mean, he was a Jew, right? In fact, he loved the Jews so much, he said in Romans 9, 1 through 5, he talks about how he would be willing to trade places with unbelieving Jews, if they would just, if that would somehow accomplish their salvation. And many of the Jewish countrymen loved Paul too, but sadly others had distorted views. They smeared him and misrepresented him, and this can be a very painful thing. And so imagine how frustrating it might have been for Paul when his fellow Jews twisted his message to characterize him as a blasphemer and an enemy of the Mosaic law. Charles Swindoll says on this passage, quote, Paul had impacted the community of the Gentiles in a never-to-be-forgotten manner over the course of his three great journeys. But back home, back among the squint-eyed, narrow-minded, petty guardians of a closed society, a vindictive view took advantage of a simple misunderstanding to inflame a mob. Paul's response would become his most challenging test of greatness. End quote. That moves us to our second subpoint here. We've seen the problem. What's the plan? The plan of being purified in the temple. That's what the plan is, verses 23 to 26. So this is what James and the elders want Paul to do. They say, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men And the next day, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. All right, there's a lot of 
There's a lot of meat in those verses. I'm going to try to summarize it for us, okay? What's going on here? James proposes a plan, and the plan was that Paul demonstrate his respect for the traditional Jewish Christian by participating in this purification process. And this included the presentation of an offering at the temple. And the elders feared that a possible confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Jewish Christians who were misformed by some of the zealots about the Moses customs was about to take place. So we got a plan to prevent a massive conflict and a distraction of the ongoing work of the gospel, they suggested a compromise. This was not a sacrifice of biblical truth for expediency, but an act of self-sacrifice and humility to promote the unity of the body in the bond of peace. They informed Paul of four men who were under a vow. Most likely this was the Nazarite vow because of the reference in verse 24 of them shaving their heads. And as you know, the Nazarite vow comes from Numbers chapter 6, and it was to symbolize total separation to God. It involved abstaining from all forms of alcoholic beverages and other products derived from grapes, letting your hair grow long. That's where the first mullet came in, by the way, guys, right here. That's the Nazarites right here. They let their hair grow long. So don't drink from the grape. Let your hair grow wrong. And what was the third one? Don't touch a dead body, right? Remember that? This is to show separation. You're different. See, these guys with the mullets, they're different, Levi. You're different than everyone else around you. I like it, Levi. I like it. Keep it. All right, so the idea here is that this was a, a symbol of spiritual devotion to Christ, and it was demonstrated in this practical way. And what, what exactly it meant for Paul to purify himself as part of the ceremony isn't, isn't uh, fully clear, but we do know that, that Paul... Uh, it was going to join them kind of at the end of this Nazarite vow. A normal vow might take about a month. And the, the purification process at the end of that month took about seven days. And so it's possible that Paul had just come back for that last part that they wanted him to join. They, they could have also said that Paul is now returning from Gentile lands and he might have been considered ceremonially unclean. And so if Paul were to go through this purification process as well for those last seven days, then it would show that Paul doesn't have any disdain for observing the Jewish custom out of tradition. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Another way that Paul could show his continuing devotion to his own Jewish heritage was to also pay for the men's expenses in order that they may shave their heads. The, the expenses connected with the Nazarite vow wasn't just a razor to shave your head, but it included paying for the ceremony that would be done at the temple as several expensive things were included, including the animal sacrifices. And this would have been a considerable undertaking for any individual, but undertaking them for another as a sponsor was considered an act of piety. And so this would be further proof that the Judaizers' charges against Paul were false. And at this point, all those concerned about the Judaizers' allegations will then know Paul, if you do this, they'll know that you're not against them. They'll know that it's okay for them to do this out of preference because you're going to join them in this. And so, again, James informed Paul that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, even keeping in step with some of the Jewish customs. And so James then added in verse 25 the clarifying statement saying, hey, this is for you, Paul, as a Jew, you could do this, but we've already told the Gentiles 
which is the summary of the Jewish Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, they have been sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So we spent some time earlier talking about what that all means and said, hey, the Gentiles should at least observe these four things. It's really three things uh, that they should observe. But for you, so that would be for a Gentile believer, but he's saying now for Paul, you're a Jew. And by encouraging Paul to go through with the purification process, they were by no means doing away with the decision rendered earlier from the Jerusalem council about believing Gentiles. They had already delineated that Gentiles did not require them to observe the ceremonies or the rituals of the Mosaic law. So we're not asking about Gentile believers. We're just asking, what about the Jewish believers? And so since Paul was a Jew and not a Gentile, again, his participation in the temple ceremony would be in no way violate the decree of the Jerusalem council. And so displaying unity and, and uh, humility and a desire for unity, Paul agreed to their plan in verse 26 says he carried it out. Now again, the obvious question, and I know we gotta wrap it up and be done here, but the obvious question is that some bring up this point, was this in any way, a compromise of the gospel. And I don't believe that it was. Paul's actions are in keeping with his missionary policy of becoming all things to all people. Turn with me, this will be our last place. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. This is Paul's motive. This is why Paul does what he does, 1 Corinthians 9, and you know this text, 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's saying I want to connect with Jews to win Jews. And then in verse 21, to those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, those with the weaker conscience, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And so even here in the book of Acts, we see that Paul remained true to his Jewish heritage in his own life. Paul himself presumably had already taken the Nazarite vow earlier in Acts 18, 18. In Acts 20, verse six, Paul participated in the feast of the unleavened bread. In Acts 23, verse five, we'll soon see that Paul still had a general respect for the office of the high priest. In Acts 16, verse three, Paul even had Timothy be circumcised, not as a matter of salvation, but as a missionary strategy for the unity of the gospel. So here, in Acts 21, Paul is willing to undergo some purification rituals in order to be sensitive to the weaker Jewish conscience. And in this situation, Paul sacrifices his own personal preference and his own freedom for the sake of the mission. Don't miss Paul's gospel centrality, humility, and desire for unity here. Paul could have said, let the haters hate but I'm gonna do what I want. But he didn't do that. He submitted to James's counsel. This is an apostle submitting to an elder. 
saying, hey, you're the elder of the church. You might know what's best for us to kind of work through this. He submitted to his council and the council of the Jerusalem elders in hopes of unifying the church and advancing the gospel. Wasn't compromising the gospel. He's seeking to compromise on personal matters and personal preferences in order to advance the gospel. So we too should be flexible when ministering to various cultures. Some cultures are more traditional while others are more relaxed. When outside your immediate sphere, you may find it necessary to learn to adapt to the ways of another group for the sake of the gospel's spread. Now, don't misunderstand me. Obviously, I'm not saying to compromise the gospel. I'm saying be willing to consider practical matters that might have to do with dress and diet and even certain rituals that without compromising the gospel, you're attempting to become all things to all people. Well, how do we do it? We pray for wisdom. We try to understand. We, we make sure that we have a balanced application of biblical principles. We must always keep the gospel the main thing and find that our identity is in Christ rather than in an ethnic group or a social class or a particular culture. You know, years ago, I showed up at a church to preach. This is before I went to seminary. I had my NIV Bible. The pastor said, hey, come here. He said, what Bible you got? And I showed him my Bible. He said, oh, you can't use that. He said, use my Bible. And he gave me the KJV. He said, here at our church, you preach from the King James Version. I said, what's that? No, I'm just kidding. I, said, I, I took it and I preached my sermon from the King James Version. It's, it's not a big deal, right? It's not a big deal for us to accommodate small compromises for the greater cause of the gospel. This passage reveals the heart of this great missionary. Paul was passionate about God's glory, the, the unity of the church, and the evangelization of all people. He's literally willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel as long as it doesn't compromise it. So Paul offers a powerful picture of Christian liberty in this passage, which shows incredible spiritual maturity. Paul was more than willing to become like a servant of Jesus, who humbled himself as well, looking to the interest of others by offering himself as a worthy sacrifice. Ministry's hard. People get confused. People feel very strongly about certain things. We've got to cut through the chaff, and we've got to get to the core. And the core is we preach Christ. Nothing else really matters. And so I pray that you'll look through those take-home sections. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you're getting lost in all the fluff, then make sure you come to him today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so after we sing our last song, we have a few people standing right here. We'd love to talk to you about how you can come to know this Christ Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins, that if you would repent and believe in him, you could have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of just doing a, a study here in the book of Acts and seeing the richness of, of the, of the uh, conversations between Paul, an apostle, and James, the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. Help us to track with their conversation and to see the beauty of giving, the, the beauty of celebrating the grace that is apparent and also the, the God-driven plan, gospel-driven plan that we would think through in our lives how some points of application might be available for us to keep the main thing the main thing, but to love all people and be willing to accommodate small concessions for the greater cause of preaching Christ. Give us that wisdom. May we do it as an act of worship and service to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.